the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. (laughs) Welcome back to the latest episode of the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. As always, we will be your co-hosts. I'm Lizzie, and this is Dean. Now, if you find value in this episode, be sure to give us a like, subscribe, and drop a comment below on YouTube. Share us with your friends. Give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to take a screenshot and tag us on Instagram, just do that by putting in at flex underscore success. And while you're on Instagram, you can check out everything we offer from our eBooks to courses and programs. You can book a consultation or inquire about coaching via the link in our bio, or you can do that on our website. Enjoy the episode. All right. We're back with another podcast and we're joined by Daniel, Dan, Dan DeBrock. Dan the did man. I say it right? Yeah. Yeah, you actually did. Most people go to Brocky. Yeah, I, I mean, I considered it, but I cheated. I've listened to your podcast, so I knew it was Debrock. <laughs> Is Debrock French? Uh, you know, honestly, I actually don't even know what it is. I think I think everyone says it's Dutch. I was born in the Netherlands, but long story. That's actually not even my real name. It was kind of a mistake. Um, yeah, we don't really need to get into that, but. <laughs> It just kind of gave me that name and I was like, so we just stuck with it. I was like, all right, this is whatever. I'm not going to. What's on your passport? No, that's, that's my, that's my name. Oh, but that's not like my family name. Right. So do either of yeah. your parents have that as a last name? No. Okay. Is, how do you even do that? Can you shorten the story? Yeah. I'm no, hundred percent. It's, it's, it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. But like, but when, when the nurse came back and they were like, they, they made a mistake. And then my mom, I guess, just didn't care. She's like, whatever. Really? So, so what I, is I, the actual surname of your parents? Um, my mother's last name is, is Michaud. Uh, I actually don't know who my dad is, so but I know it's not DeBrock, so could be anything. So it's not know. even close. What I'm, a story. Hopefully it's Elon Musk. I'm hoping he's Elon Musk. <laughs> you know, so we'll see. Well, you have inherited his brain power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to some extent, maybe. That's so funny. For people who don't know you, maybe you can give us an intro. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Yeah, so um, I'm uh, initially I started out in, in combat sports. And then once I stopped from that, I was like, just sort of bored. I was like, man, I need something to do with my time because I invested so much time into, uh, into, into fighting competitively. And one of the guys that I was coaching was like a two-time Olympian in bobsleigh. And he was just like super jacked, phenomenal athlete, very strong, very explosive. And he was an Olympic uh, weightlifter, was was a big part of his training. And so that's initially what got me into weightlifting was his recommendation to start doing that. Fell in love with it. Um, Someone there asked me to become a coach. So it all just kind of happened sort of randomly and organically. Uh, So I've been a coach for about 10 years now. A handful of years ago, I started writing uh, for different publications and then it got picked up uh, by well, by several publications, but then eventually I ended up writing for Kabuki Strength. They reached out to me because they liked my, my articles and asked me to apply for a coaching position. I did. They hired me. And uh, I've been working with them for about two years um, in the capacity of a coach. And then about six months ago, um, they, they just gave me a ring and they were like, hey, you know, we think that your skills would be a little bit better suited more towards an education role. Uh, so they kind of promoted me to my position now, which is director of education. So now mostly what I do is I still coach athletes because I don't want to lose touch from that. I know a lot of like people who are heavy into the research side of things, they just sort of lose touch with reality and they only start talking about data and they just don't have any sort of like application component. So I'm still coaching athletes, but primarily what I'm involved in now is uh, essentially research and development of different educational programs. Um, for a variety of different things. So uh, strength training, nutrition, sports nutrition, right now we're kind of working to develop uh, a SNC curriculum for MLB teams and things like that. So there's uh, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. It's a great opportunity for me to learn, grow as an athlete, grow as a coach. And then it's just like always presenting new challenges. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and that's probably one of the big reasons why I like it is it's sort of always evolving and changing. And the more you learn, the more you're like, oh man, I still have so much to, to, to do to grow and develop. So yeah, Keeps on your toes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it makes you nervous. Does it make you nervous? Uh, you know, I yeah, I think at times there's definitely a, a sense of am I in over my head? But I think that's just always normal, you know? 
Um, and I think the best thing to do is just sort of bear down and, and just dive into it and then do a good job. And if everyone else is really happy, then great, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Right. I think it's cool that a coach uh, pushes past their comfort zone because that's something we ask our clients to do all the time in various domains um, and to trust themselves and uh, build confidence in themselves through proving that they can. And it's cool to see you doing it because a lot of coaches just sit in their comfort zone and push everyone else out of theirs. So you're practicing what you preach. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm trying to for sure. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so tell us about the type of client that you work with. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of changed over the years. Predominantly right now, I, I work with, with strength athletes. So um, more intermediate and advanced athletes. But then I definitely also have some who are just not necessarily competitive, but just wanting to get in shape, wanting to like, you know, either lose weight or build strength, or they have more like bodybuilding type focuses. Um, so those are predominantly my athletes are, are strength-based athletes or bodybuilders, typically in the off season. Um, I don't do a lot of like contest prep work. I don't think that I'm necessarily the guy for that. I'm more so like, Hey, let's get you big. Let's get you juicy and stuff. And then, you know, all of the, the, the peaking and stuff like that is more suited for, for guys like you who have a lot more experience um, in, in that, in that realm. <laughs> That's the fun part. That's the puppeteer part. Do you think so? Well, it's actually the nerve wracking part too, because most people want to do a lot when really you only need to do a little and, but there's yeah. this expectation of doing a lot because peaking is this like mythical thing that everyone thinks that you can achieve. Yeah. Really you peaked for like 25 weeks of dieting, right? That's the peaking <laughs> yeah. part, you know, the, the last yeah. bit is just the relax relaxation part, but but yeah, I wonder if complexity bias comes in too, because people think for the best results, I have to do something really complicated. We was like, look, it's still a calorie deficit. You still have to just do these basic things. We're just turning up the dial a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, I recently just did an education piece for a company here in Australia called SDC Fit on how to do contest prep. And the tutorial that I gave, which was a four hour thing at the end of it, I talked through peaking strategies and the guys at the end just went, oh, fuck, there's a lot to think about here. And I'm like, there is but really all it means is you should just probably do nothing. <laughs> like I'm just saying, these are all of the considerations that make me say, I'm going to do as little as possible. Um, so it's, it's a weird domain because there is, there's this, there's this expectation of clients of you to do lots of shit. So sometimes you almost even have to pander to their, their wants. Mm. You know, peaking is as much psychological as it is the physiological side of things, which is the same with like dietary adherence and, and stuff like that with clients as well. A lot of it's about conversation. Because as we know, it's yeah. calorie manipulation, really. Do you have clients, Dan, who, um, even though you don't do their preps, like leading into a show, do you have clients that want to do like really complicated, fancy things, either with their nutrition or their training when they just kind of need to nail the basics? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and I think that that's fairly normal, you know, uh, especially if someone has been struggling for a period of time and they come to me, there's usually a level of frustration. They, they generally, at least, you know, the individuals that I work with generally try very hard. They work very hard. They've got great work ethic. They're really focusing on doing what they think they need to do. Um, unfortunately, their, their efforts are just sort of directed in not the most appropriate ways, right? So they come to me and because they've been struggling, they assume there's a level of complexity that they're missing or there are certain strategies that they're not doing when in reality, it's just a matter of actually pulling away a lot of the unnecessary things that they're doing and then taking their, their resources and kind of honing them in on things that are going to actually have a, a greater magnitude of, of effect on their actual outcomes. And so a lot of the times, exactly like you were saying, Dean, um, it, it just takes that conversation, you know, hey, like, what have you been doing? And then once you kind of have that conversation going, once you have that consistent rapport, a lot of the times you can kind of make suggestions and say, hey, you know, here's what's actually going on. Does this sound like what you've been experiencing? And if you can usually explain an individual's problem better than they can, they'll usually be like, oh my God, okay, yeah, he knows, you know? And they'll think I have some secret, but it's really not. And so it's really just a matter of like communication and saying like, hey, this is what we're gonna do. Here's why we're gonna do it. Here's what we can expect. Does that make sense? Do we have some buy-in here? Do you have any questions? And then clarifying the situation why we're doing something, I think is really, really important. Um, involving the athlete in the, the decision-making process, not saying, hey, what do you think we should do? 
But you know what I mean? Definitely getting their feedback and valuing that I think is a really, really important part because it does build trust, it builds the rapport. And if you have good rapport with your clients, don't fucking do anything, you know, like they, they will, but, but it does take a lot of work and effort to kind of break through initially in my experience. Sounds like you're trained in motivational interviewing. Uh, no, I wouldn't say trained, but I mean, like, <coughs> uh, yeah, I definitely have like more of a client centered approach in, in my own practice. Um, okay. just because I think it's so incredibly important because I mean, I guess sometimes I put it this way. I might look at other coaches and be like, wow, they're so much better than me. You know, they're so much more experienced. They're so much more accomplished themselves or whatever it is. So how can I get the most out of my own skills, my knowledge and my ability? And a lot of that isn't about me knowing more because realistically, I guarantee you guys probably actually only implement maybe 1% of your actual knowledge base with any of your clients. There's so much stuff that I suspect that you guys know that you just will never, ever implement because it's not necessarily relevant, but it's just really interesting to you guys. And it has maybe some application elsewhere. But, you know, I think the, the key is really how do I get the most out of my client? And that really comes through like developing adherence and all of that stuff. And so then it starts becoming a little bit more of like a behavioral psychology type thing. And taking that client-centered approach, understanding, you know, intrinsic motivation, self-efficacy, self-determination theory, all of these different facets and, and how they can kind of come together and help an individual <clears throat> sort of actually um, execute and sustain these behaviors and develop them over a longer period of time. Mm. That definitely speaks to me, and I'm sure I can speak for both of us when you say that, because um, we've known coaches in the past who we've really looked up to actually they've been educators really good educators at that and then they dip their toes into coaching and I think good coaching is a mix of hard science and soft skills like mm. behavior change and self-efficacy and also like knowing actually what to do um, and when people only have one or the other <laughs> it doesn't really work out. You're not getting the most out of your clients. Like you said, like clients don't have buy-in because you don't know your shit or clients can't implement it because you can't help them with behavior change or believing in themselves or, you know, so mm. I, that, that really speaks to me. Have you got some, some uh, names in mind when I say that? Oh yeah. It's, it's <laughs> huge because the, the over-educated individual in the hard skills or the hard science typically will just be like, here's your macros. Mm. And then the solution to the success there is that you just follow them, you know, and like we could, we could pull on long-term research for days to show like how, ineff how ineffective long-term dieting strategies are that aren't sustainable that you mentioned briefly. And it's because like the application doesn't meet with the psychology, mm. like the application is the easy part. Like you said, like we're kind of like pulling on 1% of the strings of the things we know from that side of things. It's then how do you implement all of the other soft skills that you've, you've brought up here, which is really cool to hear. Mm. maybe you can talk us through some of them like as a coach yourself what are some strategies that you found to be really helpful in improving client adherence <clears throat> yeah, that's so such an open question yeah um so i think i'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit if that's all right and, and oh. essentially just first talk about like the the athlete intake or, or the needs analysis right so I think if you do a very, very good job on a needs analysis, the program writes itself and the progressions typically are already at least highlighted, if not already kind of sort of very clear. Um, you know, this is where you actually get them to fill out the forms, you know, whatever questions you might be asking that, that pertain to their goals or whatever. But, you know, understanding their, their previous history with dieting, with training, what their goals are, um, where they're at right now, how much success they've had, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, if they have some sort of cognitive distortions either around their body or around um, training, dieting, their ability to succeed, you know, discussing self-efficacy, so all of these things, really getting to know the individual as well as their goals <clears throat> and really clarifying that. I think that's an incredibly important piece because not only is it important for you to know and understand their situation, but it's important that they know, you know, and understand their situation. So actually taking the time to sit down with them and go over everything is really important because what it says to them is, you know, he could have just read my intake form, but instead he said, I wanted to talk to you and get 
you know, further clarification on all of these things. And what it says to, to the client is he genuinely cares. He's a professional or she's a professional. Um, and it gives them a sense of like confidence in at the very least, like, Hey, this seems different than what I've done in the past, you know? Um, so I think that's an incredibly important piece is doing a really thorough needs analysis. And once you have that, I mean, it's very easy to identify the bottlenecks, right? And usually the primary issue that I've seen from an adherence standpoint is that people try and go from zero to a hundred. They try and go from nothing to a macro based diet with a nutrient timing strategy, having their supplementation on point, and then going from no exercise to five training sessions per week. And the reality is that if we look at each of those things, they're very easy to do. It's like, can you exercise? Yes. Can you put this into your mouth? Yes. Can you not put that into your mouth? Yes. You know, but the difficult aspect is the integration of all these behaviors collectively and then sustaining that over a long period of time. And one of the examples I like to give as well is uh, to, to kind of highlight this point is, you know, I, I was a former boxer and, and Muay Thai fighter. So I can take an individual who's never fought before and teach them how to jab. And in two weeks, that individual will have a really nice, crisp jab. It won't be like super elite, but it'll be really damn good. Throw them into a ring now and, and have them spar where they're actually getting hit. It's not going to look anything close to what it looked like. Why? Well, because now we have all these external variables that are coming at us, like quite literally, right? We can still hear you. Sorry, our camera's just shut okay. off, but the audio is <laughs> still good. Sorry, go on. Okay. Um, yeah, and so... I think when it comes to lifestyle, that's also a huge component is, you know, people always want to start out with the best and they want the most advanced. And, and it's like, okay, well, like the reality is you're here and you want to get way over here. You know, no one starts up here. So you basically just need to recognize where you're at, where your limitations are and start there. And sometimes people get <clears throat> a little bit deflated by that because they're like, oh, well, I want to do more. And it's like, okay, but we have to recognize your actual situation. And so communicating that it's not a fault, it's not a bad thing. It's just actually paying respect to the fact that you don't necessarily have that skill yet. You know, if you want to squat 500 pounds, you don't just load up 500 pounds on the bar. It's like, where are you at? What can you do? And then you slowly progress over time. Yeah. And so I was trying to explain it as like an iterative approach, like where you start is not how you end, but you do need to start somewhere and it doesn't need to be effective. So if we throw you into the deep end, you're going to drown. And that's typically if someone's, especially, you know, in your world of, of bodybuilding and dieting, most people have tried diets and failed, you know, they've, they've just gone on this roller coaster cycle. And so I think that aspect is, is a little bit easier to gain buy-in because it's like, okay, well, did it work before? And they're like, yeah, it did. And I'm like, okay, well, then why are you sitting here? You know, if it worked, why are you sitting here? Mm. You know, and, and they're like, oh, because something came up and, it, and it's like, exactly. You need to be able to develop these skills and they need to be adaptable to changing environments. And I think that once that conversation happens, then they start to get a little bit more understanding of why they failed, what their sort of triggers are, if they have any sort of relationships with food that need to be addressed, and, and so on and so forth. And then it's an ongoing conversation, but at the very least, now you have buy-in to, to the initial stages. And then you can start talking to them about progression strategies. So it's not like, hey, we're, we're going to keep you here in purgatory. It's I want to see that you can demonstrate this to a very high level of skill and, and consistency. And then once you execute these consistently, then we're going to move you to the next step and then the next step and then the next step. Mm. And we're just going to focus on behaviors. We're not even necessarily going to focus on outcomes because if we focus on the behaviors, the outcomes take care of themselves. And then that sort of gets people off of, it shifts their mentality and their focus away from outcome-based goals into like action-based goals. And I mean, if you, if you look at your calendar and every day you're checking the boxes of all the things you need to do, and you can see how they clearly will take you from where you are right now to, you know, a lean physique or a bigger total or whatever it might be, that starts to really rewire how you think about things. And it starts to give you those immediate feelings of success. You start stacking little wins, it builds motivation, it builds up momentum, and it just kind of starts to grow on its own and reach critical mass, if that makes sense. So yeah, absolutely. That was a bit of a long-winded answer. Sorry, but <laughs> no, it was a great one. So many threads that I wanted to pull <laughs> I know, me too. So at Flex Success, we think of variables into two categories. We've got 
outcome variables and behavior variables. So an outcome variable would be like scale weight and a behavior variable would be like, I don't know, daily steps or how many vegetables you ate or something like that. Um, And it's really important for us at coaches, uh, as coaches, to focus on those behavior variables because the outcome doesn't always follow the behavior. There's a big lag time. And if we're always like, great, look how much weight you lost. They're like, yeah, look, I had diarrhea and all I ate all week was a few squares of chocolate. Like that's not going to serve you very well. Mm. Um, But if the behaviors were right, even if the results don't come that week, there's just a lag time. They will eventually. So we definitely agree with you there. Mm. Um, Yeah, there are so many threads I want to pull on. I guess one of them is to do something well. You have to do it shit first. (laughs) Um, and we know that if you put someone in a boxing ring or they're trying to learn a guitar or learn how to sing, like you're going to be terrible at first. And we sort of laugh off the mistakes when we're trying to learn the guitar or when you're learning boxing or something like you expect to be punched in the face more often. But when it comes to dieting, for some reason, people just, their confidence just corrodes at the first mistake. And it's a real shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, they've got before and afters plastered in front of their face. And mm. I think a lot of the time people are far too uh, focused on extrinsic motivators to get them started. Like you said, like people come to you with this idea of needing this clump, uh, complex intervention in order to make change. And you're saying, well, hang on, let's just step back 50 miles that way and focus on the process. And, and it's most because most of these people look, are looking for something to drive their motivation without really thinking about like what are their values and mm. you know, why have they started this and why have they failed before and why do they not want to fail in the future? Um, as a quick anecdote, I had a client back in the day or a customer, I should say, who had, had actually had gastric um, sleeve done for him and he was a 200 kilo plus individual. This is when you worked in sports. This is when I worked in sports supplements. Uh-huh. And in order for him to basically drive his initial behaviors towards a positive outcome he had to come in and spend 250 300 in supplements and i'd speak to his wife and i'd tell her do not let him do this he doesn't need them and she was like if he doesn't spend the money he doesn't change the action i'm like ah this is not going to work long term mm. and it for two three years he would just keep coming back every six months i'm starting again I'm starting again and it was that extrinsic motivator of i'll spend the money then i'll do the action as opposed to asking why he actually wanted to do the action to begin with. oh that's such a shame mm. dan when you were talking about um you know keeping it simple and doing the basic things first and then adding complexity i was thinking of this um phone call i had with a girlfriend recently who just can't be consistent with the gym and i'm not her coach i'm just her friend so i'm just listening um but she was telling me that i I, she's found the secret the solution what she needs to do in order to get to the gym is find a training program that's built around the different stages of her menstrual cycle and she needs to change the rep ranges based on what like phase she's in and and i was thinking like well consistency doesn't love complexity don't we want to keep it simple and make it flexible enough that you can do it during different phases of your life but anyways Mm. i just (laughs) I, that just screamed at me when you were when you were saying the answer. It. it was the answer. Yeah, it's because our training program wasn't complicated enough. Probably. I mean, if she has the answer, can you tell her to text it to me? Because I'm not aware of this apparently. Uh, <laughs> it's time yeah. to get around menstrual irregularity. <laughs> yeah. Duh, didn't you know? Well, I think you guys brought up something really, really important uh, with regards to values because there have been several times where when I go over like what's required of a client to reach their goals, they're like, I don't know if I want to do that, you know? And, and that's the reality. And, and the thing is like, that's fine, but experiencing cognitive dissonance over that is not okay. Cause mm. that's going to just basically lead into exactly what you were saying. This like, I'm all in. No, I'm not. I'm all in. No, I'm not. And then it just, I mean, if you lose enough times, like you're just going to feel like a loser, you know? Mm. So I think that that's an incredibly important piece. And and one of the things that I always sometimes, I always sometimes, one of the things that I sometimes try and convey to clients is, you know, just because it's not your value now, doesn't mean it can't be your value in 10 years. And it's not to say that we're trying to force you into a certain model, but where you're at right now is where you're at. And you just kind of have to accept that. Like when I first started lifting or not even lifting, when I first started fighting, I did it because I felt weak. I felt like a victim. I didn't want to get bullied. I was terrified of everything. You know, we grew up in like a really, really different environment. It was just really chaotic and crazy and dangerous. And I never thought that that would lead me to get into fitness and powerlifting and coaching. Like I never did, but it did. 
you know? And so, and now my values are completely different than when I started. And so a lot of the times that does change, but it changes because you start experiencing success and you start believing in yourself and you start going for things and you start, you know, you just start reinforcing these values of like grit, determination, patience, dedication, like all these things. And then it sort of like evolves into whatever it is. But I mean, if the values don't align with, with their goals, then a lot of the times you're not going to experience success. And that's a big, big uh, hurdle to overcome sometimes because yeah. you can have a conversation with someone and they're like, no, but I want this. I want this. And it's like, do you like, you're struggling to get a 15 minute walk in every day. Do you really want it? I, I'm not, I'm not sure that you do. And it's okay if you don't, but be honest with yourself and be honest with me about it. We're going to waste a lot of money and we're going to waste a lot of time and effort. It's going to be real stressful, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think those honest conversations need to be had. The tricky thing is it can only be had really, in my experience, if you have a good relationship with your athletes. <laughs> so because yeah. people can get defensive. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. almost like you're trying to talk them out of, not, not trying to talk them out of training. You're kind of like, I'm not sure if you really, if this is really right for you or if, if what you think you want is actually what you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think ambivalence is hard to acknowledge, especially to somebody who you're not who you're Absolutely. not comfortable with, yes. right? Like, if I'm ambivalent with something and I've never met you, and then you tell me some stuff, I'm going to be like, "Fuck off, man!" Like, you don't know me. I do. Whereas, That's why I'm talking to you. I do if, want. If this. Liz says something to me, first of all, I'm going to say, "Fuck off, man!" <laughs> and then I'm going to step back and I'm going to be like, "Ah, she, she does me. know me well, you know." Like, yeah. maybe now I can have a conversation. So you're absolutely right. Mm. And I also wonder if uh, some people just identify as the lazy person, the person who skips gym sessions, the person that can't say no to the fifth and sixth and seventh beer. And so there's like a, a crisis of identity there. Mm. Like you, your identity before you started boxing um, and your identity now, I imagine are just dichotomous, like total opposites. So it's a matter of not just people wanting it enough, but having the foresight to know that they can change how they think of themselves and what their identity is. And they can be the fit person and they can identify as the non-drinker if that's what they need to do. But I also love that you say to your clients, like, do you like, are you really willing to pay this price? And I see that as just informed consent, which is part of ethical coaching. Like, yes, you can get to this goal, but it's going to mean that you have to give up this, 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 and this, like, are you sure? Mm. And that's what we should be doing, really, for everything. Really, like, imagine going to the doctor and being like, "Hey, I really want to get rid of the rash under my armpit." They're like, "Cool, take this drug. You're going to shoot yourself, and you'll probably have suicidal thoughts, but it'll get rid of the rash." Like, you want the doctor to tell you <laughs> what's going to happen in order to reach your goals, so you can make an informed choice. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so how how do you go about? getting somebody from this you know current mindset of i am potentially x person you know i am the lazy person who doesn't go for walks in the morning to then we know this particular behavior this health seeking behavior may benefit you long term for your goal how do you sort of navigate that discussion or navigate that that process um so this is something i heard from dr lisa lewis um I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she said this phrase and I absolutely love it. And so I steal it all the time. Um, she said, like, is it a fact or a feeling? And so a lot of the times when I'm having conversation with clients around these things, you know, they'll say, oh, well, I do this, I'm this and this. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you know that? You know, and a lot of the times they don't. Um, and a great example is I have one, one athlete who she's a very high level athlete. And I always talk, I always use her as example. She's probably gonna hate this in podcasts or anything. Um, she's a high level athlete. She's also a very good friend of mine, but she also has like um, a lot of ups and downs. She's got a very busy life. She's, you know, working, she was in school. She's got all this stuff going on. And sometimes little things can kind of throw her off. And so you know, she'll come into the gym, she'll be like, oh, I can't do this. Like, I'm not getting any better. And I'm like, okay, how do you know that? She's like, well, I don't know. I just don't feel like I'm getting any better. I'm like, okay, well, let's look at your training log and see what that says. It's like, well, you know, last week you had a 20 pound PR on your squat. The week before that you hit a seven pound PR on your bench. The week before that you hit a three rep max with this much, you know what I mean? And so I'm like, so are you actually not getting better? She's like, well, no, I just feel frustrated about this. I'm like, oh, okay. So that's different. So I think it's really important to differentiate like what they feel from what's actually going on. It's like, if you, if you believe that, 
show me evidence of that. If you can't show me evidence, it might not be true. And it might more so just be like a, a, a distortion, like a cognitive distortion that you might have. Uh-huh. And that's fairly normal. We all sort of have it, you know? Um, <clears throat> and then beyond that, I think it's really important to, uh, to also just discuss like, to, to give them small wins and to give them small wins on a very regular basis because self-efficacy is predicated on your ability to, uh, to succeed, to successfully execute a behavior and get the desired outcome, right? Like if you're constantly losing in soccer, you're like, man, I'm kind of a shit soccer player. You know, maybe I should do another sport. And then maybe you try another sport and you're great at bodybuilding and then you become a freaking IFBB pro, <clears throat> right? So stacking wins is incredibly important for, for building up self-efficacy, self-belief. And then it all sort of like feeds into itself and becomes a sort of like positive feedback loop for, for productive behaviors, adherence, all of this stuff. And it's not to say that there's going to be no hiccups because you're like, you're past that point, but you know, there, there's going to be a lot more momentum going behind them and they're going to start to believe in what's possible and that they can do it and all this stuff because you're just giving them small wins and you, they, you're educating them along the way so they can actually like tie those things in. They're like, I understand how me going and getting X amount of steps per day is contributing to um, you know, appetite regulation, weight loss, energy expenditure, um, how I understand how it's improving my aerobic capacity and actually helping my recovery with my performance and training. I understand all of these things. And then every time they're checking the box, it just reinforces that, hey, I can do this. I can do this. And so if you can give them small wins every single day, we don't need to wait four or five, six months for them to lose the 30 pounds or for them to put 10 kilos in their, on their squat or whatever. You can start giving them those things right now. And that's way more important than just trying to tell someone or convince someone they're not a piece of shit, you know, like they actually need to do something about it. And, and, and that's really, really important because a lot of the times people are coddled and like, I'm not a big fan of coddling. I don't like doing it, you know? So it's like people need to earn the right to feel a certain way. Like if, if you don't, like, if you feel like you should be getting a better result, it's like, okay, but why aren't you? there's something to that, you know, and it's like, it doesn't make them a bad person, but it does mean they're missing a big piece, right? Mm -hmm. So I think stacking up little wins, having those conversations um, is is really, really important to to sort of redefining themselves and and their identity and and around, you know, their goals and those subjects and work ethic or whatever it might be that they're struggling with. You and me. <laughs> I think we're uh, both about to talk. I was going to say, time. I found it really interesting that in an objective sport like powerlifting, you still had an athlete whose perception interfered with reality. Because uh, I get this a lot in bodybuilding, you know, like someone who's dieted down, highly fatigued, stressed out of their eyeballs is going to look at their physique and go, oh, I look fat this week. Mm. And then tomorrow when they have a good training session, they're going to go, I look fucking amazing. <laughs> and I have a lot of conversations around how their perception is potentially their reality, but not the reality. Like, is it a fact or a feeling? Is it a really simple way to do it? Um, and I wouldn't have expected that as much to be uh, like prevalent in an objective sport. Because if you're squatting more, you're squatting more. Mm-hmm. But apparently not. There you go. Yeah. So it is. I, I've literally had, in one year, I put over 200 pounds on this guy's total. And he hit me up one day and he's like, hey, man, like I'm getting really frustrated with my training, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, it's just... Uh, I just don't feel like I'm going anywhere. And, and so I was like, okay, you know, and so I just showed him the, the data. And a lot of the times it's not actually about that. It's about other things that they feel about themselves that are just sort of permeating into the, into the conversation. It's like, you know, outside insecurities. Um, and a lot of the times as well, like it's, it's important to have just an ongoing dialogue. And in that particular case, that was an instance where I did drop the ball actually, where, you know, because everything was going so well, I didn't necessarily think that I needed to touch base with him on things like that. And whereas I should have been, because even though they're making progress, you can't always assume that they feel like they're making progress, even though like objectively, you know? Hmm. Um, So their interpretation of what's going on is, is really important as well. And that was something that I failed to communicate as a coach. Um, And so we did sit down we did kind of hash things out and then it was all good, but, um, there was a period where it was it was a little bit rocky and again like 200 pounds in your total in, in 
one year is, is bonkers, you know? Mm. So, um, it's just, it just is the way it is, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that highlights the importance of coaches setting expectations. Cause I've had a similar experience where I've dropped the ball with a client. She came on board and we agreed on a deadline for, I think it was like 12 kilos she wanted to lose. And I figured out the math, she needed to lose 720 grams a week or something like that. And in the first two weeks, she had lost three kilos between. And so she was way ahead of um, our average weekly loss. And she said to me on the third week, I don't think it's working out. I, my weight's just not shifting like I thought it would and blah, blah, blah. But I guess I should have confirmed with her, like, but do you understand that you're losing double what the weekly average is? And anyways, she was like, oh, really? And then I just laid the numbers out for her and she was really happy again. But I think it comes down to, even though we think something obvious is obvious and clear, it doesn't mm. mean the client does. So, yeah. And similarly, I think like people's constant wish to progress in the forwards direction or well, progression implies forwards. <laughs> I just did this sometimes always. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Is that like, you know, a 200 pound total increase is amazing. It's like also the person who goes from losing 50 pounds to then finding maintenance and then maintenance becomes this negative all of a sudden when it's actually the most positive potential scenario you could ever get yourself into. But people need mm -hmm. to like realign that again, this comes back to that value discussion and not being about this external goal and, mm -hmm. and progress uh, and is a zigzag. Yeah. And mm -hmm. being process focused and not outcome focused and whatnot too, which has been a, a large, you know, discussion on this which has been cool hey so dan i like where you're at where do you get your um <laughs> like your mindset or your information or your influence from uh, i don't know uh, <laughs> um a, a lot of places i guess so there's there's been a lot of people in the fitness industry who obviously influenced um you know my my background and, and the things that i've been interested in um all i guess kind of like the the big names, I guess, uh, you know, like the Mike Isertels, Mike Deschers, Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, all, all those people. Um, so I think there's a lot of amazing resources out there. I also tend to read a lot of research. Um, so I'll probably read like maybe two hours a day. Okay. Um, research, just because like, one, I like reading, and then two, I'm really introverted. So I don't go up much. <laughs> and so I just, I spend a lot of my time reading. Um, and yeah, and then just like other people in the gym, like I'm very fortunate because the gym that I train at is a really, really strong gym. And so a lot of those, you know, a lot of my, my lifting partners are quite high level. Like we got like five, 800 pound deadlifters there. A um, lot of people who squat over 700. Most people deadlift over seven. One or one 900 pound squatter and like so some, some really, really big, big lifters. Um, and so a lot of them really like help push me and guide me and things like that. And then, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess I've never really been asked that before. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I think, know that I, I think may have asked you because you're probably not a traditional strength coach uh, in regards to the discussion that we've had today. No, you're, like you're most, so well-rounded. Most performance coaches are very in the numbers. Yeah. You know, and definitely not inside that motivational interviewing, understanding ambivalence, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's super refreshing to you. Yeah, it is. Hey, so um, it's okay if you don't want to name names, but out of, uh, but I'd love you to, out of the <laughs> big names that you've been influenced by, is there anything that any of them have promoted or um, tried to educate people on where you're like, that's just wrong, either morally or just scientifically? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Actually, and more, I, I literally posted about this yesterday, I think. Okay. Um, I think the post I made was like, unfortunately, we live in a time where in order to be controversial, all we need to do is tell the truth, oh, something okay. to that effect. Um, so I've been really frustrated with the, uh, the conversation going on around, uh, obesity and, and fat shaming and things like that, <clears throat> because, it, it just seems incredibly one-sided. So I'm not sure if this is going to come off as controversial, but like if you actually dive into literature, it's not being represented fairly at all um, in, in my perspective. So when we look at, when we look at you know, the discussion around it, it's always people are talking about, oh, well, it's complicated. It's mediated by the environment, by your genetics, by your, your culture, by your individual history 
trauma, all these things. And like, I wrote a 17,000 research review on variables that impact eating behavior. So like, I'm very familiar with this stuff, but at no point, and this is the kind of part that annoys me at no point are they actually just talking about, Hey, here's what you can do in spite of that, in spite of there being all these things that are potentially, you know, working against you, even though we have, let's say like this much control, that much control, we can do a ton with like a ton. And there's a significant lack of emphasis on personal responsibility that is really, really detrimental. And that's actually starting to become more, um, more apparent, even in the research, where people who don't, who are obese and are overweight, don't actually see themselves in that light. And that actually tends to perpetuate an increase in the prevalence of obese individuals. And actually, you know who I've been really, really, um, have really enjoyed lately is Jackson Payos. So he's been posting some fantastic content on this, calling out the exact things that I've been saying that I've been kind of frustrated with. It's like, hey, this is not a fair representation. So in my opinion, if someone's going to go on and, and say, I'm a subject matter expert, then cover the subject and don't be worried about like, oh, well, this is controversial. So I'm just not going to, you know, it's like, hey, you have a responsibility to actually discuss this in a much more fair uh, light than, than what they're doing. And they're, you know, conscious omission, in my opinion, is to some degree unethical, if you're going to really be a subject matter expert and discuss these things on a public platform. I'm getting a little worked out because it does really drive me nuts. But um, even, uh, even fat shaming as well, right? So everyone just says fat shaming is bad. I, I don't think there's actually good evidence for that. And that might sound, you know, counterintuitive. But first of all, like, this is my, my first uh, qualm with it. What is fat shaming? Define fat shaming. There is no clear definition of fat shaming. If you look in the literature, there's not a clear definition. It's the same when you're talking about like defining the core. It's like, what is the core? We kind of all have an intuitive sense of what the core is, but there is actually no clinical definition for what the core is, you know? And the reason why that's important is because when you start saying, hey, fat shaming is bad. Well, okay, well, what do you mean? Because the only definition that I've seen is very, very broad and literally even includes intentional or unintentional observations that are factual about an individual body weight. So that means that if a doctor is saying like, you know, if you're like, how much do I weigh? And I say, uh, 250 pounds, that's fat shaming or could be fat shaming that that's included in that umbrella, which is absurd. And then we look at the differences cross-culturally, how, how different cultures interpret these things. And they're not ubiquitous by any stretch of the imagination, Right. Then we look at internalization and the differences between males and females and how much they internalize their, their physiques and their body image. And there's actually research that shows that, um, you know, uh, women actually have, an, have a, a for, for women, you know, quote unquote fat shaming actually does tend to have a positive association with higher BMIs. But for men, it's the inverse relationship. When you fat shame men, they actually tend to lose body weight, or they actually have a, a lower BMI, right? And so some, it's like, well, why is no one talking about that? You know, if we actually want to get to the truth about it, why is no one talking about that? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying it's okay to just go out there and be a dick to anyone, right? Like that, that's never what I'm saying. But I am saying that if we're going to talk about these things, we do need to have a more holistic and balanced discussion on these things, because it's not an open and shut case by any stretch of the imagination. And um, so I'd say those two things recently are the biggest things that have been frustrating me. Okay. We, three episodes ago, introduced a new segment to the podcast called Hot Topics. And it's when we ask guests uh, something controversial. Mm. So maybe we'll skip over that because go. I, I do think that this was controversial. I think this is it. I was like, <laughs> she, and you know what? You've taken away Liz's um, pride and joy, which is her new little, uh, what do you call it? I, she has a soundboard and mm. there's a song called hot topic she'd normally play it would introduce the hot topic but not today <laughs> i i sung um you know the song hot potato hot potato hot potato potato, potato. No, not everyone knows this oh this. man so in australia we have a, a children's band called the wiggles and they sing this song called hot potato and mm -hmm. i sung over it with hot to topic hot to topic and that's man. how yeah so you've robbed me of the song thanks dan but i i do love the topic <laughs> maybe I should play it anyways yeah um, um so what you're saying is you feel like even though you um 
acknowledge that obesity is a wicked problem. It's complex. It's not just that everybody has this. It's like not everyone has the same 24 hours in the day. Not everybody is born with the same circumstances and some people are more predisposed to obesity. You acknowledge that, but you're saying you feel like the narrative is disempowering. Yeah, that, that's basically what it is. So like previously, you know, if you were overweight, there was a huge stigma around it. And, and that definitely was negative. And so it swung towards the opposite, where it's like now, you know, we're all promoting body positivity. And I think that that's a really good direction. It definitely needs to happen. The unfortunate thing is that right now we're sort of a little too far on the opposite end. And we kind of need to bring it a little bit more back to center and say, hey, you know what, there are real, um, there are real potential risks with saying that you can be healthy at every size, because no, you can't, you know, and that's a factual statement, but that's very controversial, but it shouldn't be. So we need to find a way to, to kind of balance those two things out where it's like, hey, you know, just because someone's overweight, it doesn't mean that they're lazy, doesn't mean they're a bad person, it doesn't mean that they have, you know, anything wrong with them, but it also doesn't mean that they're helpless. And so the, the main thing that I'm concerned about is that, you know, like with, you know, people are concerned with calling foods dirty or clean because of the perception that it gives. What perception does it give to the public when you say disease, uh, obesity is a disease? It's like clinically, that's a very relevant term and it's important, but do they actually understand what that means? Most people, I would say they don't. And it does, it does risk building complacency, building up this sort of victimization mentality of like, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do because I have a quote unquote disease. So I just think that we need to be very cautious about how we're discussing these things because not everyone really understands, you know, the, what a disease state is. Not everyone understands what it means, you know, the whole body positivity thing or healthy at every size. And, and so. Sorry, you keep going. Our camera is just absolutely tripping, but the audio is good. <laughs> so, so that's, that's the only risk that I'm saying is like, I think it's going in a great direction, but we just need to pull back a little bit and start, you know, reevaluating how we're, how we're continuing to have these conversations. That's, that's the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't surprised me at all that it's come here because like anything, like a political movement, whatever, when the pendulum swings, it never swings only to the middle. It always swings too far before it comes back to yeah. center. And this is in the context of like new age social media where people are just scrolling, reading the headline. Of course, people are going to say things like health at every size. No, you can engage in health seeking behaviors at every size, but even if you're too small, you can't be healthy. Like mm -hmm. you can be, yeah. you know, healthy with every marker except your weight. Sure. But it doesn't mean that your weight isn't a risk factor. Well, I mean, Dan also said the word before, which is, I think, super important here is this, this needs to be a discussion whereas currently and when the pendulum swing this is always the case we're having two sides argue for right. their want to win you know like it's two two camps debating for and against as opposed to two groups collectively coming together to determine what the best possible solution is you know or discussing the nuance like having the time and the energy to actually think well do i need to rethink my position mm. where could i be wrong yeah, yeah. But, but I think you as well, Liz, said like the word for me, I think it's the scariest with all of this current approach is the disempowerment that is it is providing individuals to not feel like they can actually make change should they want to, or that it's actually okay to want to change your body because that's kind of shifted at one point too, where if you're dieting, yeah. you've got a you've you've got a fucking eating disorder. A, eating disorder. I was like, wow, like, all dieting is an eating mm. disorder. Yeah. I actually have I would classify her as one of my best friends. Um, we've had quite a lot of conflict very recently, like the last couple of years. Uh, she's a body positivity advocate, which I think I very much support that movement, but just so long as it doesn't go to the extent that my friend has taken it, which is you have no control over your weight. And she put this pie graph up, who the fuck knows where she got it from. Maybe she created it on Canva. And it was like, your weight is controlled by, and it was like 95% genetics, 5% yeah. activity or something. I was like, come on, man. Mm. Like, <laughs> what the hell? What's happening? And the people reading that and liking it and commenting like, oh, this is so great. What All you're doing is telling them that they have absolutely no say in their life, no control. It's just genetics. And I think it's coming from a, like, from a good place. She's not done it to hurt anyone, but it is hurting people regardless of the intentions. Mm. 
Yeah, and that's the difficult balance, right? Because like even when you're talking about genetics, genetics to some degree are, I don't want to say malleable, but there is an element of like an environmental stimulus that can change how your genetics actually start to express themselves, obviously. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of subtlety and not a lot of people wanting to have, have these conversations. And again, I understand it, you know, like if you have a business, you don't necessarily want to put a target on your back. But in my opinion, it's like, that's the ethical thing to do. And I'm not going to tell anyone like, you have to do this, you have to do that because it's not really my place. Um, but just for me, that's sort of what I think is, is probably the thing to do around this because ultimately that's what needs to sort of push things back into a little bit more of a neutral zone where people can actually have more productive conversations without being afraid to be ostracized or criticized or called fat phobic or whatever it might be. So. Mm. But there's a difference between like, cause when you're saying that you're not against fat shaming, just to be clear for, for listeners, you're not saying that you should say to someone like, Oh my God, look at your stomach. It's just maybe like pointing out the fact that they may have an easier life with less risk if their body fat came down a bit. Is that right? So I, I'm, I wouldn't say that I support fat shaming at all, <laughs> okay. you know, um, just, yeah, to be clear, if, if that's what I said, then that was definitely me misspeaking. Um, more so what I mean by that is, is just like people talk very definitively about these things as if it's like an open and shut case, whereas it's not. And the reason why that's important is because we actually want to understand how these things are associating with an individual, their propensity to gain weight, their propensity to, to sustain a certain, you know, level of healthy weight. We need to really understand all the factors that are driving these behaviors and that are driving these outcomes. And so to simply say like fat shaming across the board is bad. What do you mean by fat shaming? Is, is just simply weighing someone fat shaming? Because under the actual research right now, yes, that is, right? If someone feels or interprets something a certain way, that is actually classified as fat shaming. So it's way too nebulous. And we need to understand like, for instance, why is there a difference between male and female interpretation of these, these criticisms? right? Mm. That's important. If we actually want to help men and women, we need to understand the differences between them in order to actually come to an effective solution that's able to be applied individually with a higher level of precision and, and an effect. So mm. it's like, <clears throat> I'm not sitting here, or, and if that's how it sounded, I, I got to correct myself again. I'm definitely not saying, hey, go out and, you know, fat shame people, whatever. I'm just saying, that it's not as cut and dry as people think. And we need to understand the nuance and we need to really discuss that if we want to get to a more productive solution for all of this. Hmm. Gotcha. Love it. Yeah. Um, maybe, yeah, I, I wasn't trying to say that you were saying fat shaming is okay, but I think I was just trying to clarify what you meant by what would be a helpful form of, of that. Yeah. Which is first trying to define what it actually means to fat shame. This, and without the definition, we can't create any form of dialogue or even action in order to determine whether it's got a positive or a negative outcome. Maybe it's got a neutral outcome. It could have both. But the, the, yeah. the point is here is that you're saying is we need clarity and with clarity, we can have discussion and that this isn't an argument. It's, it's, it's a matter of figuring out like what can we best do for everyone on a general consensus. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah love it. This could become the whole podcast. The hot topic is usually like a, sh a short, sharp. <laughs> no, it was good. That was good. Oh, man, that's a topic that I think um, you could unpick forever and ever. Mm. Now, because we want to be respectful of your time and time is getting on, perhaps we can ask you to wrap us up with a less shit tip. If you had to send the listeners away with one tip on how to be less shit, what would that be? Um, I guess I'll give two. Uh, the first is take a high degree of personal responsibility for things. Um, if you don't take responsibility, you can't affect something. If it's out of your control, you can't affect it. But if you adopt responsibility, you can have a massive impact on your life just in any, in any realm. And the second thing would just be start slow and start with where you're at. Like you don't need to go from zero to hundred. Zero to one is perfectly fine because one leads to two, two leads to three and, and so on and so forth. So that's what I would say. I love it. That's great. And can I add to your responsibility comment? Sure. Yeah, yeah no. of course. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> this is mine. Mine would be that um, it's your responsibility to improve your life, but it's not necessarily your, just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean that it's not your responsibility to recover or improve or progress. Mm -hmm. Because often I've, 
like I've, I've had clients in the past who take responsibility for things that aren't their responsibility, like they eat because they've been sexually abused and they don't want to be seen by men, for example, and they feel like it's their fault and they're like so silly for putting themselves into this position. And it's the responsibility of the wrong things that put them in a hole. Mm. So taking responsibility of their next best step is what you're talking about, not necessarily responsibility for circumstances that were not within their control. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's <laughs> much better than the way I said it. No, it's I love what you that. said. I, um, I've just recently been thinking about this whole idea of, because I listened to your podcast before you came on and you mentioned that you started fighting because of PTSD. Is that right? No. No? Okay. It's just that PTSD impacted your eating behaviors. Well, yeah, I had PTSD and, and so there, there's, yeah, it definitely did impact my eating behaviors um, among other things, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. And so you took responsibility for how you um, changed your eating behaviors, but you didn't necessarily like accept responsibility for the things that led you to that condition. Yeah, no, I mean, Lot, that stuff's outside of my control, right? But under understanding and being aware of it was really helpful because I'm like, oh, okay, I understand, you know, my behaviors now, my life makes a lot more sense why I'm experiencing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can I actively control? And then that was sort of the, the discussion for me. Yeah. How powerful. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Do you know many other people um, in similar situations who haven't been able to take the best action? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a couple individuals in my family who we had a very, very different and difficult uh, sort of upbringing. Um, our environment, it was quite, quite bad. Um, and so unfortunately, some of my siblings just ended up in a very bad place. Um, mm. You know, my one brother's in prison, uh, unfortunately. And so, you know, he was a kid when he went to prison. Now he's like 40 something, you know, so it's like, unfortunately, it's not great. And then, uh, you know, there's other people that I definitely know. And I've, I've tried to get involved in like certain outreach programs, mostly for like youths, because I think that's a huge thing is like where, where you can really impact someone is, is by like preventing a lot of this stuff. Huh. You know? And so, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's really tough. I certainly am not an expert and I, I don't know <laughs> the answers, but uh, there's people out there who really, really struggle with certain things and um, they just need, help they need the resources and yeah do you think that your experience is what's driven your passion for self-improvement and taking responsibility because you've been able to harness that and improve your life so much could you ask a question again sorry oh I was just asking if you think like your experience with taking you know the next best steps um and getting yourself out of a bad situation is what's given you the passion that you have now for showing people that they can take responsibility? I don't know. Um, That's a good question. I think I definitely would be a little bit more on the side of, hmm, yeah, that's a tough question. Because on the one hand, like I, I literally have to bow my head to environmental impacts and you know like the stuff that happened in in people's past and stuff like that because I'm a product of that as well well we all are to some extent right but um at the same time I do think that there's a lot that we can do um so I would I guess I would have to say yes it it definitely has impacted like maybe how I approach things with with some individuals um yeah, sorry, I wish I had a better answer for you. No, that's a fine it's answer. answer. It's, a very, it's a very difficult question for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, Dean, would you rather? Is it on you? Oh, you told the man that I'm not creative on the spot. <laughs> we always finish with it. Uh, we've got something worth sharing first, actually. Oh, yeah. So we've, we've got your Be Less Shit tips. Uh, we also generally ask everyone if they've got anything they'd like that they think is worth sharing for the, the community that are listening to. So. Anything. Anything we're sharing um i don't know listen it could to this be podcast. like a quote or a book or this is a good podcast <laughs> <laughs> actually <laughs> let's share your podcast yeah, yeah. that's a killer podcast you've got some good, good guests on there <sighs> yeah 
yeah, no, I've, 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 I've been really fortunate actually. It's been really great to like um, just connect even like this, right? You meet new people, you learn new, learn new things. You get connected with like new ideas and concepts and stuff like that. So it's, it's been really cool. And the name of your podcast? Uh, Stack Strength Podcast. Cool, cool. I loved it. Yeah, yeah it's a great podcast. Yeah, it really it's, is. You do that. Dean and I are staying in this um, little village in Turkey, and I just assumed that the village was big enough to have a gym. I was mistaken. And so we've been, well, it's like a three-hour round trip to get it's to the gym. It's a one-hour bus to get there. Yeah, plus the walk to the bus and on the other side. So we've been listening to your podcast during the trip, and we've been loving it. It's We're been officially great. on maintenance awesome. and uh, education. <laughs> so it works out. <laughs> maintenance training education basically uh, you know as much as we can yeah but because of the, the recent bout of food poisoning which we spoke about before we started recording i it's thursday thursday wednesday mm. i haven't trained yet uh probably won't be training until tomorrow That'll so tomorrow, sure. i feel like i've lost all my muscle even though <laughs> but is that a fact or a feeling <laughs> it's definitely a fact yeah, yeah, exactly. i've lost all my muscle in four days <laughs> <laughs> all of it um now Dan, you're still more jacked to... than me so oh, what was that <laughs> said you're still more jacked than me so (laughs) i don't know about that i do not know about that if people wanted to connect with you how could they find you um i'm most active on instagram um if i didn't work in the fitness industry i honestly would not have social media but i am i'm very active on social media so if anyone sends me dms um, i always get back to people Give it a little bit though, because at any given time I have like 70 DMs. So I just always kind of have to take time rolling through everyone. Um, so that's uh, Daniel underscore DeBrock. I have a YouTube channel, Daniel underscore DeBrock. That's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I have a Facebook, but I'm on there maybe once every three months. So that's for a family that you don't talk to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Will you answer really personal prying questions like the one I've asked you today? No, actually. Um, I, yeah, that caught me off guard and I said it. And then as I was talking, I was like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, I'm, I'm generally a very private person. Um, okay. Even the people who know me, I don't really know much about me. <laughs> if I'm being honest. Well, I um, thought it might yeah. be okay to ask because you mentioned it on your podcast. So I thought that it would, yeah. So mm. I hope I didn't put you on. The oh, screen. no, 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 no. That, that's totally fine. It is Let's try and one up it though with a would you rather. Now well, you're on the spot. Hang on. Let me share with you. I also have PTSD, yeah. if that makes you feel more comfortable. And, um, I'll share that with the audience. And I started jujitsu as exposure therapy, um, which was scary as shit because my biggest <laughs> fear is like just flying hands and generally men being near me. So that was horrifying. So I hope that maybe me sharing makes you feel more comfortable about sharing too. Yeah. Yeah. There's exposure oh, therapy. And then there's Liz who just decides to jump in the deep end without arms and legs <laughs> and floaties. I tried to do it the smooth way. My yeah. psychologist said that. I should just sit through a movie with a violent scene that's on. And like, even though she knows I'm going to have a panic attack, just like sit there, remind yourself it's on the screen and nothing scary is happening here. And we even like, I went through and curated like a few scenes, like this one's like not too bad. This one includes this kind of dialogue, this one, and like, you know, so that it could be even different levels of exposure. And she's like, no, I'm going to jujitsu. Well, I tried to do the movie thing and I just like (laughs) freaked out every time. And my choice was either like accepting that for my life or yeah. doing something that I couldn't run away from, which is some man pinning me down until the buzzer goes off. Responsibility. So, <laughs> and responsibility. Some people are just like that. They're like, I'm the same way. I, I'm like, you know, let's just get this over with. Just rip the bandaid off. Come on. So, yeah. That makes sense. I think, yeah. I think that might have to be the heading for this one. Something about responsibility. <laughs> Perhaps. Accepting responsibility. I think the heading should be Dan agrees that you should fat shame everyone. <laughs> that is the name of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for taking my career, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on. It was really fun chatting with you. He's not getting away without a would you rather. Oh, no, sorry. Okay, yes. would you rather? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to full warn you here, man. This, okay. could be, this could go any direction. Would you rather have to be uh, really direct with your clients about the way that you say things? You can't be like sensitive and try and come across in a way that would, would appeal to their sense of rapport with you. So too direct. Or be so soft that results suffer and you're not really helping your clients build dependence. Independence? Too direct. Oh, independence. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd rather be too direct. Okay. Because at the very least, then at that time, I'll probably attract a clientele who would respond better to that anyways. So. Okay. 
cool. That's the way I see it. <laughs> yeah, okay. that's fair. You, you got you got lucky there, mate. Ah, uh, actually, no. Let's not let him off the hook just yet. Did you know this man doesn't scrunch or fold, but rather he depends on how he feels. <laughs> We have a questionnaire that we ask podcast guests, do you scrunch, <laughs> fold, or depends on mood? And, and you he... chose depends. That blows my mind. I'm assuming that's talking about laundry. No, no toilet going paper. to the toilet. Oh, Who yeah, okay. I didn't know that meant. <laughs> I don't know. Well, f- I, I've never heard that before. I thought you meant fold. I thought I was like scrunch. I'm like, this what's that? Sense. And then it was like fold. So I was like, oh, maybe they're talking about laundry. I was like, I don't really fold my laundry. I just leave it in a basket. And I just kind of pick See, it this out. is an Australian thing. We assume that people knew what we're talking about, maybe. All right. I so said, do you scrunch or fold your toilet paper? What's the answer? I don't know. I've never <laughs> thought about it. Next time you go to the to toilet, toilet you have to yeah. message us. I'll, I'll make sure I text you, yeah. We'll put it in okay, the show guys. notes. <laughs> It'll just be <laughs> selfie on story. Dan like this, and then just holding up like what I'm assuming is scrunched because a man who folds knows he folds. Well, a man who just leaves his laundry in the basket doesn't fold his toilet paper. So I'm going to go with scrunch. I said scrunch. Yeah. 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 Different reasons. Oh. But yeah. <laughs> Let's end it on that note. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> note to end it on. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks for coming on, Dan. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a really great chat. Like you guys have an awesome podcast. So it's really cool to, to, to be here kind of chatting with you and meeting you guys face to face. Thanks. See you in the next episode, guys. <laughs>